and then make your way to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And we are um, looking at this subject ultimately of humility in chapter 2. Each, each chapter in the book of Philippians is really kind of divided up. Uh, looking at um, ways that we can continue to have what is the theme of Philippians. Anybody remember the theme of Philippians? One word, joy. So each chapter divide up how we can continue to have joy in Jesus. And, and there's oftentimes things that come our way that wants to rob us of our joy. In chapter one, we saw the secret of joy in spite of circumstances is the single mind where Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So I'm that singleness of mind that's like, it's all about Christ. And when I'm thinking about Christ and my living is all about Christ, no matter what comes my way, I can have joy. Now here in chapter two, Paul says the secret of joy in spite of another potential joy robber, the secret of joy in spite of people is the submissive mind or the humble mind. And so in chapter two, we've been looking at the exhortation to humility, the key you know, in, in just dealing with things that might sour our joy is to just walk in humility. As Paul says in verse, verses one of four, you know, look out to the interests of others uh, above your own. Let each esteem others better than himself, right? And so that's the exhortation of humility. But then in verse five to 11, we saw the incredible example of humility that was seen in Jesus Christ who came to this world as one of us, and who was willing to die for us, gave himself up fully, and not just die a, a regular death, but became obedient even to the death of the cross, crucifixion. But now, in verse 12, we begin to look at, you know, what that means for us now. So we see the exercise of humility, and then the expression of humility, and that's what we're going to be looking at here today as we uh, complete the chapter. And, and we're looking at how, you know, Paul said, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus there in verse five. Well, we continue to look at kind of the mind that we're to have. And so we're going to look at uh, the mind of Paul in verses 12 to verse 18. Then we're going to see the mind of Timothy, verses 19 to 24, and then the mind of Epaphroditus, and how these people all were those that exercised this humility and expressed this humility in how they lived and, and what they did. Look at verse 12 with me. It says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So after being exhorted to humility and seeing the great example of humility in Christ, we're now encouraged to exercise this humility in our daily lives. Interestingly, God's therefore that we see in verse nine when we see the example of Christ, but then we see God therefore, what did he do? He exalted Christ to the highest position, the name above every name. We see God's therefore that is now matched by the Christians therefore in verse 12. And these are transitional verses, right? So God therefore exalted Christ, therefore now for the believer, Here's how you're to live. We see our right response that we're to have now based on what we've seen Christ do, what we've seen God do in and through Christ here. And so Christ came, lived that life of obedience. And so we're called now to live that life of obedience. Just as Christ was obedient to the fullest extent, Paul reflects now on the Philippian believers' obedience. An obedience that wasn't just evident when Paul was there. 
right? It's not like the believers were walking around Philippi going, everybody be on your best behavior because Paul's here among us. We got to put on a good show, right? We want to make him proud of us. This wasn't just in his, in his presence. Paul says, even now more so in my absence. You're continuing on in obedience, but now through that obedience, may you be those, and notice what Paul says, may you be those that work out your own salvation, Work out your own salvation. Now, this has brought a lot of confusion to a lot of believers, a lot of Christians, and a lot of churches where they read this and they, they think, oh, see, we've got to really work for our salvation. We've got to earn our way to God. If we're going to be right with God, it's got to come through our own righteousness. And so people begin to kind of cloud their thinking when they read a verse like this, thinking that it's through my own effort, my own righteousness, and I'm going to be saved. Listen, this is a, 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 a something that we all easily begin to fall into because it really becomes that default position in the heart where we feel, you know, we've got to be religious. We've got to earn our way. We've got to contribute to this incredible salvation we have. That becomes the default position of our heart that we need to guard ourselves from to say, it's not by what I do. It's completely in and through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's why he said, it is finished. He says, the work is done. So we have to continually guard ourselves and remind ourselves, my salvation is not dependent on what I do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is still as true today as it was when Paul wrote it, where it says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul isn't coming along now in Philippians saying, you know what, when I wrote Ephesians there, man, I was kind of like fresh in prison here at Rome. I wasn't thinking straight. I wasn't in my right mind. I don't know what I was saying. But now, let me tell you, after writing that, I realize I've seen the light now. Here's what it is. You gotta work for your salvation. That's not what Paul's doing here. Ephesians 2 is still applicable for us and true today. Paul is not saying work for your salvation. He says work out your salvation. There's a big difference there. It's like, it's like going to the gym, right? You go to the gym to do what? To work out, right? How many of you like to go to the gym, work out? All right, thank, okay, I was hoping I'd see no hands. It made me feel a lot better, as you can see. I got, I got rebuked for wearing a white t-shirt to the baptism. That, wasn't a, that was a mistake, because you can see, this guy needs to work out a little bit there. But I was like, make sure, and I told everybody, make sure you don't wear a white t-shirt. You want to be modest. And I ended up wearing a white t-shirt. I'm like, what am I thinking? What did I do? So anyways, my family rebuked me royally for that. But you can see, maybe I need to go work out a little bit. But we go to the gym to work out right? And you don't work out to get a body. You've already got a body. You work out because you want that body to be all that it can be, right? That's why we do it. You see, we're already saved. The Lord's already done that for us. But we want to work out that salvation because we want to experience the fullness of that salvation. We're not looking to improve on that salvation. It's already complete but we want that salvation to be all it can be. In other words, what's the goal for us as believers? To be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We know that that's not gonna be completely perfected until we're with Christ. But what we do right now is we work out our salvation. We say, I wanna continually be growing and progressing in the fullness of what Christ has for me, that I might be becoming more and more like Jesus each and every day. See, a lot of times when people get saved, we feel like, 
that's it, I've arrived, I've, I've made it. And we just kind of sit back. But you know what, when you get saved, you're just hitting the starting line. Your salvation is complete, it's done. But you see, we're just entering into the glorious race where we're saying now, and I get to live my life for Jesus. I wanna to continue to grow in fellowship with Jesus and become more and more like him. That's our heart, that's what Paul is saying here, that you would work out your salvation. Paul says as much, I mean, you think about a guy like Paul, and he would say in, in Philippians three that we'll be getting to in a, in a couple weeks, he says in Philippians three, verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul is the guy that's saying, man, I'm working it out. I'm continually pressing on so that I might attain all that Christ has for me, that I might walk in the fullness of this salvation that he has for me. And let me tell you, the life that he has for us is a blessed, abundant life that we wanna continually be growing in and we wanna continually be more and more like Jesus. So that's why Paul says, work out your salvation. I like what he says in 1 Timothy 4, 7, exercise yourself toward godliness. Paul was the guy that I think he loved. He loved sports, he loved activity, probably loved some competition here and there because I love the metaphors he likes to use about you know, working out or sports analogies. And I like to bring that up when I can just to, you know, give an excuse for my love of sports and stuff too so that you don't think I'm carnal. I can go, Paul is the guy that liked it too. So just, anyways, so Paul's the guy that, that loved all that. He said, exercise yourself toward godliness, how we need to be doing that. Not, not to be saved, but because we are saved. Because we want to continue on in the fullness of what Jesus has for us. So Paul says here with fear and trembling now, this again, this idea of fear and trembling biblically is not the idea of, of being fearful or, or cowering in terror of God, though we certainly could be because he's a, a mighty God, he's a consuming fire. But this isn't the idea of what Paul's talking about. He's talking about having a right respect and response to God because of what Jesus has done for us. May you live with a, a fear and trembling to say, I don't want any of what Jesus has done to go to waste in my life. I don't want to have a low view of what Jesus had to go through to save me. I don't want to minimize the work he did for me on the cross by not progressing, by not continuing on, by not working out my salvation. I want to have a right response, a right reverence, a right fear of God. Hebrews chapter four, verse one says, therefore, since a promise of entering or remains of entering his rest. Let us fear lest, any, lest uh, any of you seem to come short of it. You hear that? There's something that's even greater that's awaiting us. Uh, we have not arrived yet. Oh, we're saved. We're blessed. We're in Christ. But may we continue to work that out. May we continue to have a fear lest we come up short of all that God has for us lest we fail to enter in to the fullness of this life we have in and through him. So continue to work out your salvation. Continue to put into practice, exercise those things, live it out. But notice this here. I'm so thankful this isn't something that God is looking to you to say, you know, manufacture this or try to generate this in your life so that there's something to live out. Notice what he says here in verse 13. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice that. God is working in you so that there's something to be worked out. God does that work in you. It's God who works in you. What God has worked into us, we seek to work out of us. He gives us the will to live in a way that glorifies him, that is for his pleasure. Now, listen, that's not always the, the natural tendency for us, is it? We like to live our lives to where it's like, I want to see my will be done. I want to see my pleasure come to fruition. And yet, the Lord is the one that's working in us, giving us desire to live out this life that becomes more linked to his will and his pleasure. And life lived for God's pleasure and glory is going to be the satisfied life. It's the life of joy. Why? Because you're living in the very purpose by which you've been created. You've been created to glorify God. It's, it's according to his will and his pleasure that we've been created. Our lives live or exist for the glory of God. We need to realize that. And when you're living your life in a way that glorifies him, that's living according to the very reason you've been created, well, that's when you're gonna find the greatest satisfaction and contentment in your life. It's not by living your will, it's living his will. The very author of your life, living according to him. And when we come to terms with that, you know, we can begin to handle the hardships that we might face a lot easier because we understand God is working all those things out for his good pleasure, which ultimately becomes our blessing and pleasure. Listen, you might find yourself in a quandary today and you're wondering, why is this happening? Why am I going through what I'm going through right now? The key is to submit to the Lord, exercise that humility, and let him work through you for his good pleasure. Listen, Joseph was a man, right, that was given a dream that you know he would see his brothers bowing down before him. He knew that a time was coming when he'd be put in a position of authority over them. Sure, Joseph was excited to see that day come, but that didn't happen immediately, did it? That took some time. And in fact, it not only took some time, it took some trial, it took some valleys, it took some hardships in Joseph's life. Times where Joseph could have easily thought, where are you, God? What are you doing? Why is this happening? How come these doors aren't opening? You've given me this dream, this promise. Where is that now? But what we see with the life of Joseph is that God was using all those things and orchestrating all those things together to bring about not his will, but God's will. And God is at work. Joseph's life certainly is <laughs> a, a picture of Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purposes. Joseph's life reflects that in a nutshell. And the same goes for us, where we're in a situation, we're thinking, God, where are you? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you opening these doors? Why are you allowing me to go through this trial? We have to understand, oh, wait a second. God, it's you that's working in me according to your will and not my own. For your good pleasure to unfold in and through me. Joseph went through much before that dream was fulfilled, but God was there every step of the way carrying out his purposes. So please get this in your heart and in your mind that our lives don't exist for ourselves. Our lives exist for God. We're not living for our own pleasure. We're living for his good pleasure. And when we do this, living will be a pleasure. When you live according to his will, 
and his good, you're going to recognize that, man, this is the life that's full of joy. Because it's not dependent on what I want. It's living according to what God desires and wants. And then he says in verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may be that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I like that Paul says, do all things without complaining and grumbling because we can think we're doing okay when we haven't complained a whole lot that day or maybe we haven't complained as much as that other person that we've seen complaining and just you know, nannering on and on and on and, and, and grumbling about stuff. And we're like, man, next to them, I shouldn't complain very much. But Paul's not measuring things based on other people. He's saying, do all things without, compl-. he's not giving you a free pass. He's not excusing. He's saying, listen, guys, there's no cause. There's no reason for complaining and grumbling or disputing when you are in Christ, when you are living by faith in Christ, when you're living for his will and his good and perfect pleasure. Complaining and disputing shouldn't be a part of the Christian life, period. You know what that's like when you're hanging out with people that are constantly complaining, grumbling, disputing. Hanging out with people like, going, man, it's not a lot of fun to be around those kinds of people, is it? Kind of just brings everything down. I, I, I read about a, a tour guide in Ireland that took uh, groups along Blarney Castle and to, to the Blarney Stone. And, and uh, he said, you know, being a tour guide here is not always glamorous. We get people that are, are oftentimes very much complaining about everything. He said, there was one group that we had come through and they were just complaining about everything, you know. And they were complaining about the weather. They are complaining about the food, the accommodations. And then he says, to top it off, we took them up to the castle. We got the Blarney Stone. We saw that it was all roped off. It was doing some work around it. And so one lady that seemed to be the, the chief fault finder of the group, exasperated, said, oh, great. Now we're not even going to be able to, you know, kiss the Blarney Stone and just continued on complaining. And the tour guide said, well, legend has it that if you kiss somebody that kissed the Blarney Stone, it's as though you've kissed it yourself. And the lady said, oh, and I guess you've kissed the Blarney Stone. And the tour guide said, oh, better yet, I've sat on it. So sometimes that's the way that, sometimes that's maybe the way that we want to respond to other people. I, I really debated sharing that. I, I did the other two services. I didn't get too rebuked over it. So I thought I'll try my luck a third time. So hopefully you're not ready to walk out. But um, or hopefully you're not ready to complain over my <laughs> illustrations. I've got a verse for you. But, but you see, we know what that's like when we're hanging out with people that are complaining. Yet I think, how often do we complain before God where we think, oh, I'm not publicly doing it, but in my spirit, I'm just grumbling. And, and why, is, why is it important that we're not grumbling and complaining? Well, first of all, it shows our lack of faith in God. It says, God, I'm not happy with my circumstances. I'm not happy with what's going on right now. This isn't in line with my will. And we fail to bring ourselves just again under the obedience of, of his will and his pleasure. And we've gotten off track and we've begun to complain and, and grumble over these things. And we just simply show our lack of faith in God and our trust in him and what he's working and what he's doing. You know, the, the Israelites coming through 
their wilderness journey were famous for being those that were grumblers and complainers. And, and they're, they're held up throughout scripture oftentimes as that example of do not grumble as the Israelites did in the wilderness. They're coming through the Red Sea. They're seeing great works that God do, you know, does in their lives. And then all of a sudden they come, they're like, we're thirsty. We need water. Whoa, why did you bring us out here where we're just going to die in the wilderness? And they're just complaining. God provides water for them from a rock. And then they no sooner begin to grumble over, you know, the food we have to eat. It's not very good, Lord. We want something better, you know. He's supplying manna from heaven like Krispy Kremes each morning that they wake up to. And they're like, we want something more. They're complaining and grumbling. That was this attitude that they had that got settled into their heart where that would just became the natural response that they had. So much so that it caused them to be exempt from going into the promised land because it was really revealing this lack of faith in God. So it shows our lack of faith in God, but secondly, it ruins our witness among the world. When we as Christians begin to conduct ourselves with just complaining and grumbling, the world looks on and they go, why would I, I want to be a part of that? Shouldn't these pe people be rejoicing and happy and thankful in who Christ is and what they've done? Notice what Paul goes on to say, he says that you may become, in verse 15, that you may become blameless and harmless. Blameless means to be above reproach. And it certainly didn't speak of sinless perfection, but it did imply that when you are at fault, you're quick to own up to it, you're quick to confess it, to repent of it, to seek forgiveness so that you are blameless, that there's nothing that somebody has against you, that there's no accusing word that can, that can hold up against us. That's what it means to be blameless. And then to be harmless is the idea of being innocent. Same as what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 16, that we're to be harmless or innocent as doves. We indeed should be living in a way where we stand out in this world. And living innocent and to be innocent of evil or wickedness is gonna greatly stand up in the world today because notice how Paul identifies the world there. He says, among which you live in a crooked and perverse generation or in a perverse and crooked world. Being innocent is gonna greatly stand out. And that's the point. As Christians, we should be living differently. We should be standing out. Paul says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Notice Paul doesn't say that you are to one day shine or you're to work towards one day shining your light. He says, you are to shine as lights in the world or among whom you do already is what he's saying. You're already lights. It's, just, it's the same as what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. And by saying that in the, in the Greek, it's like saying you and, and nobody else, even though we're all involved in that as believers. But the, the importance, the emphasis is on you. And the fact is that you are light of the world. As believers, we don't become lights. We don't train or have to take a course on how to shine and, you know, what's the, the right, you know, uh, lumens that we're to have and everything like that. No, we're already light as being in Christ. Just as planets and the moon don't generate a light within themselves, they simply reflect the light of the sun, so too for believers. 
We just simply reflect the light of the sun, the sun of God. And the closer you are to that source of light, the brighter you're going to shine. The closer you are in fellowship, in relationship, in, in communion with Christ, the closer you are as you abide in him, the brighter that you're going to shine in the world today. This isn't something that you work for. This is something that happens very naturally as you just abide in and fellowship with Christ. As you grow in him, as you work out this salvation. Listen, the world is either going to see Christ in you or they won't. And if you call yourself a Christian and you're not shining forth the light of Jesus Christ, the world's going to be left to wonder what's so great about Jesus. If they don't see the difference that he makes in your life, they're going to be questioning why they need him for themselves. Oh, I pray that we live in a way where we are just living in the blessing and the fullness of life in Jesus Christ as we work out the salvation, as we shine for Jesus Christ in this world. And notice Paul says in verse 16, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. Not only do we live a life now of witness as just an example in how we live, and shining forth light, but Paul says, do so not just in action, but do so in word. Hold fast to the word of life, the word of God. Hold firmly to it. Don't don't turn away from it. Don't um, don't waver in it, but hold firm to it. And don't just hold fast, holding firmly to it yourself. But I like how the King James says it says, hold forth the word of life. In other words, give it out. Let it be released. Share this with people. Let people see and meet Jesus through the word of God. Let them see the gospel, the life that they can have through the salvation and grace of Jesus Christ that comes through the word of God. Hold forth the word of God. Don't just be a witness by action, letting your light shine, which is important, but be a witness in word, sharing and holding forth the word of life. And notice, I love how Paul says here, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I've not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul's going, man, I want you to hold firmly to these things and live these things out so that when I'm with Christ in that day, I can look and see that you're with Christ in that day and that I might rejoice. Not, he's saying, not just rejoicing that I'm with Christ, but rejoicing to see that you're there too and that my work wasn't in vain. Paul had a great heart and concern for others. He's not just looking at his life going, man, I just want to make it to heaven and be a Jesus. He's going, man, I, I want to see others coming along too. I want to see that you hold firmly to these truths and that you are going to be with Christ in that day again, rejoicing in the day of Christ when we see him face to face. That's the kind of heart that Paul had. And not only that, notice the, the depths that he's willing to go in seeing that happen. He says in verse 17, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and, and service of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. See, Paul was ready and willing to lay it all down. In his mind, his death was imminent, yet even here, the theme of this book comes out, it's joy. It's not a joy dependent on circumstances again, but it's joy stemming from a life that is fully given to Jesus. And that's what that drink offering represented. 
it represented like the, the priest that would come when a sacrifice is made on the offering, oftentimes it's accompanied by a drink offering poured on that sacrifice or even poured on the ground. It was completely emptied out saying, man, I'm, I'm fully dedicated and, and committed to you, God. And that's what Paul is saying here. I, if I'm being poured out, if I'm, if I'm gonna be surrendering to the point of death, I'm willing to do that. And I, and I rejoice in that. And Paul is seeing their service of faith as that sacrifice being placed on the altar. Paul is the lesser offering, the drink offering being poured on top of it. They were both laying their lives down in, in service and in commitment to the Lord and for the gospel. But Paul rejoiced and even magnified their work and rejoiced in their service. In the same way, he asked that they rejoice in his life being poured out, even if it meant impending death. He says, don't don't be sorrowful for me. Rejoice that I've been able to live my life to the fullest for Christ and in Christ. So as Paul lays out this mind of Paul, this exercise of humility, we move on now in verse 19 to look at this expression of humility where we track now the mind of Timothy and the mind of Epaphroditus. Look at this expression of humility, verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. So Paul, he had a real dear relationship and camaraderie with Timothy. Timothy's mentioned some 18 times in the writings of Paul. So Timothy and Paul were well acquainted. They had spent a lot of time together. And they were a real blessing to one another. And here's Timothy now with Paul in Rome, supporting Paul while he's in prison. But check this out. Paul shows this genuine care for others in that he was willing to give up Timothy. He was willing to say, man, he's like one of the only guys that's here with me, standing by my side, but I'm willing to give him up so that he can go to you and comfort you. And that he says, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. He wants to send Timothy back so that he can comfort the people, share with them what's been going on with Paul, that Paul's doing well. And he says that, that faithful helper and blessing to him in this time of need here. For I have no one, Paul says, like-minded, who will sincerely care for your state. Paul looks at Timothy and says, man, there's not many people that I, I can trust in this way that's thinking the same way I am, that's as like-minded as I am. And I know he's gonna come and sincerely care for you. He, he wants to come and minister to you. And that's again, Paul could be sitting here saying, listen, guys, I need all the ministry I can get right now. I need all the support I can get right now. But he's gonna come and minister to you and care for your state. That's the heart of Paul. He's willing to sacrifice his own comfort in order to comfort others. Verse 21, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now look at Paul, he's just elevating Timothy. He's not, he's not glorying in himself. He's not saying, hey guys, and by the way, I hope you're really thankful of all that I'm doing for you. I'm willing to give up Timothy. He says, no, he's elevating Timothy. Most people seek their own benefit. Not the things of Christ, but here's Timothy. His concern is for others. He's willing to, to lay it all down here. And I, I, in verse 22, but you know his proven character. That is a son with his father. He served with me in the gospel. 
Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Timothy, serving with Paul in the gospel, that's like signing your own death warrant, right? It's like, hey, mom and dad, I'm going to travel with Paul, you know? And Timothy's like, so guys, this could be it. Say your goodbyes. I may not see you again. I mean, when you're going and traveling with Paul, you're like saying, this is probably going to be it. I may not return. Because Paul's a wild dude, man. He always seems to get himself in the midst of controversy. So this could be Paul, or sorry, Timothy, continuing with Paul as he did. He was just really surrendering it all. He lived a submissive life to the Lord, knowing that it was all in his hands. But yet Paul lived that same way. He says, but I trust in the Lord that I myself also may come shortly. Paul's like, man, I, I don't know what the Lord has for me, but I'm trusting in him and what he does, that I might see you again. Many believe that he did have an opportunity. He was released from prison for a time, where he was able to continue on to visit some people before he was brought back to prison for the last time where he was eventually executed under Nero's reign. So he's just trusting the Lord here. I love that. And then the mind of Epaphroditus, verse 25, we're gonna read this all in one lump sum here from verse 25 to the end of the chapter. So Follow along with me here. Verse 25, yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I sent him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. So here's another example of just a submissive and humble mind. It's found in Epaphroditus here, who again was just willing to give everything up, give his own comforts up here. And notice this. He, it says in verse 26, he was longing for you all and was, and was um, distressed because he had heard that he was sick. <laughs> Here's Epaphroditus. He comes, to, he comes as a messenger from Philippi. The church sent him to go and comfort Paul. We're going to see later in Philippians that Epaphroditus came with a gift to support Paul and, and help him out. But he comes now and he gets very sick. He gets very sick even to the point of death, which is interesting because, you know, God didn't instantly heal him. There, there's an example that a lot of times people think, you know, oh, if you're not healed, there's something the matter with you or you're lacking faith. Here's Epaphroditus and he's with Paul and yet he's not healed instantly. He's sick to the point of death. But then eventually God moved and worked in his life. It wasn't through Paul saying, oh, but then I laid hands on him, he got healed. It's through God working in him. Listen, we believe that God heals. We believe that when people are sick, we want to pray for them, and we believe and trust God for a healing. But we also recognize that sometimes God's doing a, a, another work, a greater work sometimes, that maybe is happening before that healing takes place. So we trust the Lord. We pray for those things, but we also leave it in His hands. But here's Epaphroditus, who's distressed not over his sickness, He's distressed over the people that are worried about his sickness. He's worried about them. He's like, don't worry about me, guys. I'll be okay. And here's why Epaphroditus knew that he'd be okay. 
Because notice what we read in verse, uh, verse 30. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life. Paphroditus wasn't worried about this because he's like, I don't hold my life near and dear to me. Man, if this sickness takes my life, well then so be it. I'm going to be with the Lord. He wasn't concerned about that. And I love this attitude, the same attitude we see with Paul when he's being warned about going to Jerusalem. Saying, Paul, um, difficult things are going to be happening to you, but remember what Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, he says, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He says, I don't count my life dear to myself or that I might just finish my race. Epaphroditus, sick to the point of death, but didn't, again, regard his life. He wasn't holding on to his life. He wasn't saying, ah, Lord, help me, save me. He's like, Lord, whatever you need to do, may your will be done. God, you're the one that works in me. Works in me to do your will, to will and to do according to your good pleasure, as we've seen there in Philippians 2, verse 13. God's at work here. We see a great example today here in, in Paul, in Timothy, and Epaphroditus, who were all servants of the Lord, working out their salvation, learning to walk in humility, learning to live their life, not for themselves, but for the Lord. To say, it's not my will, but it's your will I want to see done. I want to live for your pleasure, for your glory, and not my own. Oh, may we pray that we follow in that. Continue to work out our salvation to say, God, I want to be more like you. I want to have more of the mind of Christ. I want to have more of that, that humility that you showed when you came and you gave everything for us. May I live in that way. May I serve you faithfully, wholeheartedly. May you be glorified in and through my life because my life exists for you, God. Let that be our, our prayer today. Knowing that we pray those things, not to say, I gotta do more, I gotta try harder. We pray these things because we understand Jesus has already done it all for us. He's already saved us. He's worked in us that it might be worked out of us, that we might live in that fullness of God for his glory and pleasure, which equates to our satisfaction and joy. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask today that, Lord, you would enable, equip us, and help us, Lord, by your Spirit to see the salvation worked out in us. Thank you that you've worked it in. You've done it all, Lord. Our salvation doesn't need to be perfected, we just want to continue to walk in the fullness of all that you have for us. We just want to continue to be more and more like you. So may that be very relationally as we just spend time with you, Jesus, and grow in you. Use us, Lord. Help us to be shining your light brightly in this world, to be living in a way like we've seen modeled for us, where we don't hold our lives dear to ourselves, but we're willing to have it poured out like that drink offering in service to you, which ultimately, Lord, is to your glory 
and our joy. So may we see that, Lord. Help us in that, we pray in your name. Amen. And I just want to share if you're here today and, or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, um, I, want to, I want to bring some good news to you today. Bad news, first of all, is that our sin has caused us to be separated from God. Our, our sin has ruined what God intended, and that is for us to enjoy life in Him and through Him. Sin came in and got in the way, and we've all been guilty of sin. We're born into it. But God did something about that. He sent His Son, Jesus, to come to this world to die on a cross to forgive us of our sin. In dying on a cross, He paid the penalty that we deserved, which was death. He died the death that you and I deserved, that we could have life in Him. Jesus died and He rose again. He, he was resurrected, securing life, assuring us that there's more to come. Life in Him, life now and life forever. But that life comes by you surrendering your will, surrendering your life, saying, I'm a sinner, Jesus, and I need saving. So would you come and save me of my sin? Forgive me, and I pray that I would experience your life now. And when we pray that, the Bible says we become a new creation. We are now in Christ. It's not about living a good life. It's not about being a good person. It's about being in Christ. And we do that simply by inviting him to forgive us and to be our life. And if you haven't done that before, would you pray that simple prayer of simply saying, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. Forgive me my sin. Would you come and be my Lord and my Savior? I want to be found in you. I want your life. And when you pray that, the Bible says you become a born-again child of God. Old things have passed, behold, all things have become new. Would you receive that today? It's a free gift. Don't put it off any longer. You don't know when you'll have another opportunity. And that must be done while you have life here in this world so that you can be assured of eternal life to come. Receive that freely today. And if you have, let us know. Email us at the church or come and talk to me if you're here. I'd love to share more with you. I would love to see you leave here today knowing that you are in Christ and that you have life in and through him. All right, let's all stand together. Let's close with this song here.